Well, hopefully it's not too embarrassing for them, but uh, Dan and Melinda Roast are with us. They were married in August and then moved to Illinois, so welcome. It's nice to see you folks. Yeah. We were hoping you'd come up and share a message. With, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's great to see you guys. Uh, so as a reminder, we said last week, we're, we're, uh, our Advent series is three weeks this, this year, so we're not starting today. We're doing one more uh, sermon in Mark, and then uh, we'll jump into Advent for the next three weeks and then have a one-off sermon uh, as normal after uh, the Christmas uh, time, and then uh, we'll jump back into the book of Mark. I wonder if you've ever said this phrase, I can't believe it. We use that phrase oftentimes when we're very excited. Our expectations, our hopes have been met or maybe even exceeded. I can't believe it. Maybe that happens when you get a gift from someone, a surprise. That that could be for your birthday, it could be for Christmas, or a friend comes from out of town to surprising you. I can't believe they're here. I remember when I was a kid, I got uh, one Christmas, I got an air hockey table, and I just, I could not believe it. I kept telling tell my family to pinch me. I just, is this real? I got an air hockey table. Just this like, times of joy. Other times you might say it at times of great life change, right? Where these moments where you know life is forever going to be different. So you get married, or you have a child, or a grandchild. And these are, these are times of great excitement. You, you finally retired, and you say, I can't believe it, it's here. Or maybe it's at a time of just a great accomplishment. You've put a lot of time in towards something. You, you, you finally graduated took a lot of time and effort, or a project at work that you've spent a long time on, and there's been ups and downs, and finally it's here. I can't believe it. These are, these are great moments. But of course, there's a other side to that phrase, and it goes a little bit more like, I, 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 can't, I can't believe it. We use the same phrase to express deep sorrow, deep, deep disappointment. And again, when these major life moments happen, where you know life is forever going to be different, if a family member has died, I, I can't believe they're gone. I'll, I'll never be able to talk with them again. Or a family member leaves the house never to return. Or maybe it, it, it's experiencing the poor decisions of someone else, and you, you get uh, splashed with it, and you have to deal with the consequences. So if someone breaks into your garage or your home, and you just feel this violation, I, I, can't, I can't believe this happened. Adultery. Something where it's just really shocked you to the core. Or, so we also use that phrase, when we ourselves are the one who have just done something, we have failed the Lord, we have sinned against God in a way we did not think we would ever do. We thought that was unthinkable for us. And yet, how, how did I get here? And sometimes it might not be something that is at greater lengths, but it's just the repeated failure in the same way again and again. And you've begged God, take this struggle of sin away from me, and yet you've done it again. You once again spoke to your family member harshly 
and have torn them down rather than built them up. You've given the cold shoulder once again after you've, you've told them, I, I will not do that anymore. I will communicate with you. You've clicked on that thing on the computer once again. You've overeaten again. Whatever it is, we have these sins that they, they just keep coming up again and again. And you get to these moments, you say, I can't believe it. Again. If, if any of these situations are you, which I trust uh, you've experienced those, and especially this last one where it's your own sin, where you get to these moments and you just say, I cannot believe it. Well, then this passage is perfect for you. We actually see Peter at the end of the passage experience something very much like that. I can't believe I failed the Lord that way. Rather than denying myself and picking up my cross, I have denied the Lord. I've been ashamed to even associate with him. But this passage, though, is good news for us. And so we'll walk through the passage to experience it a little bit and then reflect, how is this passage good news for us? How does it give us hope and stability in this unstable world? Because this is good news for those who follow Christ, this passage. Uh, last week we saw the first half of it, uh, starts from 53 that Danica read, uh, where we essentially have two quote-unquote or air quotes trials, Jesus on trial. It's more of an interrogation uh, that he's being put through by the uh, chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the Sanhedrin, as they're called, the council. And they're interrogating him. And meanwhile, at the very same time, Peter is out in the courtyard of the high priest, and he's also being interrogated. And last week, we saw that Jesus intentionally, for the first time in the book, public, goes public, he intentionally reveals his identity for the sake of making sure that he is going to be put to death. Right? So his, his revealing of his identity will ensure his death. Meanwhile, at the very same time, Peter is concealing his identity to preserve his safety. So you have a very strong contrast here. Jesus reveals his identity to ensure his death, while at the same time, Peter conceals his identity to preserve his life. Well, let's walk through it first. It's, it's a pretty straightforward uh, passage for us, actually, verse 66 to the end. <clears throat> for we have round one. Uh, we start with the denial. Round one, as verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him, and she said to him, you, you also... We're with that Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I, ni I neither know, I, no, I don't even understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. <clears throat> now let's just remember to catch our bearings here. Peter, uh, the night, he's had a quite interesting night. If you remember, it started with the Passover meal the night prior. Uh, this is now early morning, maybe one, two in the morning, but earlier in the evening, he ate the Passover meal with the Lord Jesus. And at the meal, if you remember, Jesus told the disciples that all the Passover meals previously, which were reminding us of the, the original Passover, were actually pointing forward to a greater Passover that Jesus is bringing. He is going to give his very life so that God's wrath will pass over all those who trust in him. 
Meanwhile, at the dinner, he says that someone's going to betray him. One of the 12 is going to give him up, and Jesus is going to go die. Peter then goes with Jesus off uh, into uh, the Mount of Olives with the rest of the disciples. There, uh, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, all of you are going to scatter from me. Peter, as we see him throughout the book, he, he can't help himself, but he quickly blurts out, yeah, I, I, know, I know these are all weak, weak dudes here. They will scatter you, but not me. You forget who I am. I am Peter, the rock, remember? I'm not going to scatter. And Jesus, with compassion, I trust, and gentleness, looks at Peter with a heart of mercy and grace and says, Peter, before that rooster crows twice, three times you're going to deny me. It goes right past Peter. They go, uh, Jesus then takes Peter, James, and John further into the garden where Jesus prays in front of Peter, James, and John. And I trust Peter had, uh, was, was within earshot as he hears Jesus weeping loud cries of tears to the Father in agony, crying out to the Father, if you can take this cup, take it, yet not my will, your will be done. And what does Peter do? But he falls asleep right, with the rest of the, 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 the other two. And Jesus comes over three times trying to care for his people, trying to care for his sheep with gentleness. Peter, wake up. You need to pray. But Peter just, the, the fatigue has overwhelmed him and he keeps falling asleep. Finally, after the third time, Jesus wakes him up again. And right at that moment, Judas comes walking with the soldiers and the, the chief priests and such. And uh, he, he watches as Judas gives up Jesus, betrays him, and he's, Peter's hauled, uh, Jesus is hauled off uh, by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. At which point, all of the other disciples scatter. And Peter, in an act of courage, actually follows. Follows Jesus all the way to the palace of the high priest. And he goes right into the courtyard. And that's where we find Peter right now. He's, he, we, we learned last week, we saw Peter's warming himself with the other soldiers at the fire. And you can try to imagine, like, what's going on in his mind. I, I don't know, but I trust as he's warming himself, this is finally giving him some time to try to process what in the world has happened tonight. And what am I going to do? Jesus is in that room. He's being interrogated. He's been handed over. All the other disciples have left. What what are we going to do? And if you remember, uh, another uh, author recounts that Peter actually sliced off one of the, the ears of one of the, the high priest's servants. And uh, Peter, Peter, in some ways, is ready to take up arms. And perhaps it's that he's actually thrown off guard, maybe, when this servant girl, it's not a soldier that interacts with them, it's this servant girl. And over, over the fire, she spots him. You know, because remember, for the whole week, they were on the lookout for these, uh, these troublemakers in the community, Jesus and his disciples. And the text says, she, when she saw him, she looked at him. I would imagine Peter there, she, he could just feel the eyes go right through his soul. She says, you, you were with that Nazarene. And, and Peter, uh, it, it, I mean, it's almost as if she had held out a plate of rotten meat to him that's full of maggots, offering him a bite to eat. So quickly, with visceral reaction, wants nothing to do with the comment. I want nothing to do with that man up in the scene up there. I have nothing to do with that man. I don't, he won't even mention his name throughout this scene. 
I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even understand what you're talking about. And he drifts off into the night, hopefully in his mind, to another location. He's in the gateway. Well, Peter has just done it. I cannot believe he was so ashamed of the Lord, he might think. Well, we go to round two. Peter is now relocated, <clears throat> hoping uh, to not be spotted, verse 69. And the servant girl saw him. This is presumably the same servant girl. Saw him and, he, and began, to, uh, began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. So this round two is very quick. Uh, Peter now in the gateway in this other part of the out, outside of the palace. And I don't know, I'm just imagining you, when Peter saw the servant girl now approaching him, he's probably with a, a crowd of other people. I would imagine he's probably trying to, you know, like bury his head a little bit in the sh- shoulder don't make eye, t- eye contact with her. She's going to spot me. Or maybe he tries to act cold and, <clears throat> you know, he's covering his face. Whatever it is, she spots him. And not directly now to Peter, she doesn't talk. She speaks to everyone else. And she points him out. Do you guys see this guy? This guy was with him. He's one of those People who were with that troublemaker with Jesus the Nazarite. Right there. And Peter once again shoves it away. I don't know anything about this man. That's round two. And it's over just like that. What you see in this narrative happening is uh, Proverbs 16, 18 on display. Pride goes before destruction. If you remember Peter, Peter was the guy, he thought he had it all together. And maybe, maybe part of his problem was success himself. You know, Peter had done a lot of miracles already in the name of Jesus. He had cast out demons. He was one of the, the unique three of the twelve. So here's the Son of God incarnate walking around, and he is one of his closest friends. He got to see Jesus rise, uh, raise Jairus' uh, daughter from the dead. Only three people got to see that. Only three people were on the mountain to see the transfiguration. That was Peter. He felt pretty special. And here you're watching him step by step begin to crumble. Well, that's round two. On to round three. This is uh, verse 70b. And after a little while, so presumably somewhere around an hour maybe has gone by, while the bystanders again said to Peter, now, now this is not the, the girl speaking anymore, this is the bystanders, the, the mob said to Peter, no, 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 certainly you are one of them. You're a Galilean, most likely. It's, it's, it's your accent gives you away. We all know it. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down, and he wept. Now this time, 
Peter begins to dig the hole even deeper. If you see that, he invokes a, a curse on himself. Essentially, he said to the, the bystanders, as they're all accusing him, something to the effect of, no, I do not know the man, and I call God Almighty right now to strike me dead if I actually am lying right now. I have no clue who this guy is. May God curse me and I die right now. Would anybody say that if they were, telling the tr- if they were lying? Nobody would say that. I do not know anything about this man. I mean, he has gone to places that the Peter we saw a couple hours ago, that was unthinkable. And I would, I would imagine in Peter's mind, as soon as he says that, everything goes silent. Even if the people are talking, just the shock, the fear, everything goes silent, that is, until that rooster crows. Crows the second time, and it says immediately, Peter's reminded of what Jesus had told him. Peter, this is going to happen exactly as I proclaim to you. You will deny me three times. And I, I, I think that in an act of sorrow for his sin, but also a deep wonder of the mighty love of Jesus for him, he breaks down and weeps. And the other gospel writers tell us that he flees into the night at this point. I, I, I think this is, this is a moment where, if you can in your mind's eye, sort of run with Peter through the night, if you can imagine him leaving. Maybe he's running, maybe he's walking, I don't know, but maybe he trips. Trips over, you know, a root of a tree and he, he falls over and is just, he's just broken and just lying up, staring off into the night, weeping, weeping. I did it again. I failed the Lord Jesus. I've sinned against him. And it's good for us to sit with Peter in that because this, this is not a passage that's meant to say, don't be like Peter. This is very much a passage that says, you're just like Peter. That you're you're so quick, I'm so quick to protect myself, then do as Christ says and stand with him. I want to preserve myself, my comfort, the things I love, rather than stepping out and doing exactly as Christ calls me to. I want to feed my flesh rather than obey the Lord Jesus. And so this, this is a passage that very much is meant to confront us, to help us see we are just like Peter. But it's not meant to keep us there, because <clears throat> this passage is meant to give us hope and stability in this world. This, this passage is good for us to have in the scriptures. So with that, I want to just move then and say, okay, how, how is a passage like this meant for our hope and stability? So Romans 15, 4, that says, says that all Scripture was written uh, so that through the endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So all of Scripture is meant somehow to build hope into me and into you, if you are God's people. Psalm 1 says that uh, those who meditate on the law of the Lord will be built like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, the leaf does not wither. They have stability throughout all the year in an unstable world. Through God's word. So I can assume that this passage is meant to give us hope and stability in this unstable world. So how, how, does, it, how does a passage like this 
do that. <clears throat> well, number one, I think a passage like this frees us from taking ourselves too serious. It frees us from thinking too highly of ourselves that the mission somehow depends on us. So here's, here's a great reality that runs all the way through the scriptures. The mission of God is dependent on God's faithfulness, not on man's faithfulness. The mission of Christ coming and dying in the place of sinners was not dependent on Peter getting it right. In fact, it was assured that Peter would get it wrong, and that's why Christ had come. The, the mission of God moves forward not because you and I are faithful, but because God is faithful. And that, that is great news. It allows us to take ourselves way less serious because we will uh, stumble and crumble along the way. It's a mission, like I said, that runs right through the scriptures. Abraham is given a covenant of God, uh, Genesis 12. In the very next scene, after God tells him to leave and go, and God will take him to a land, he'll build a great nation out of him, and all, all of uh, the nations will be blessed by, through him. Uh, right after that, he goes, and what does he do? But he gives his wife away, Sarah. Sarai at the time. Now, how, how in the world is the promise going to come through if you, you, you get scared of Pharaoh and you give your wife away? Well, in the scene, God prevents anything that happened from Sarah and makes sure that Sarah, Sarah is given back to Abraham. Why? Because the mission of God is not dependent on Abraham's faithfulness, but on God's faithfulness. And you see this all through the kings. You see this in the, the life of Samson is a good one to, to look at. Samson is a man controlled by the flesh. In the whole way the, the author of Judges paints him is he's just always going after his flesh, whether he's just in a fit of rage or he's going after certain women. And yet God is preserving and protecting the Israelites through this sinful man. God's mission moves forward not because of our faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness. And I think that's part of what the contrast is happening here uh, between the, the Jesus being so faithful up in his interrogation and Peter being so unfaithful because it does not depend on Peter. And brothers and sisters, that's good news for us. As soon as we forget that, we become less risk, risky. We want everything to, we want to make sure that we get all our ducks in a row. We want to play it safe because we think too much of this depends on us. We become more like the child who's afraid to jump in the pool into their dad's arm, who's standing there with just the water up to his waist, because they might, they might sink. And the reality is, you're right, the child will sink, but not when dad's there. But when we can trust this reality that the mission is up to God, not to us, we become more risk takers for the sake of the kingdom. And we can actually look at our sin rather than always try to hide it. So, you think about this this week, this month, this year. Uh, if you ever find yourself stressed, you know, to share the gospel with a family member, a friend, because you're afraid you might not say it right, uh, they might ask you a question you don't have the answer to, or maybe you did share the gospel and you're like, oh, I, I, I didn't answer that well, and you just keep going through the thoughts. This is, a, this is a good reality to say, hold on a second. The Spirit of God is way more powerful than my stumbling words. Of course I'm not going to answer every question right. And of course I'm going to say things that are foolish at times. But the Spirit of God is way more powerful than me getting this thing right. And that sets us free. And it gives us actually more courage to actually share uh, the gospel. Or if you, uh, uh, this, is, this is a great news for anybody who sins. And when you jump in the mud, you splatter mud on other people. Parents, this is great news for you. The reality is your sin and shortcomings in the home is going to have an impact on your kids. And a lot of that, you won't know what that is until they're grown. 
And that, that can la either land on us like a ton of bricks and crush us, or we can say, you know what? Yes, my sin impacted other people, and my children are shaped because of my sin. But that does not hinder the mission of God. God's hands are not somehow tied that he doesn't know how to work in my kids because I messed them up. No, God's, God's grace and God's power is way more powerful than our shortcomings. And that's great news. That doesn't mean we take our sin lightly. It just means that we don't get now buried underneath the reality that you are a broken sinner, but we have a great Savior who can overcome your weakness. So that's one way I think this passage increases our hope and stability by looking at our sin. But uh, second, I think this passage then gives us hope in God's restoring and transform, uh, transforming grace in our sin. This it gives us hope in God's restoring and transforming grace in the midst of our sin. So this passage, I would, I would presume, I would trust, <clears throat> is one of the lowest points of Peter's life. <clears throat> but the good news is that God is one who restores sinners. He transforms sinners. This is, this is a little bit like uh, Jonah not wanting to follow the call of God, and so he runs the opposite direction. And remember, the storm comes, and the, the sailors ask him, what should we do? Remember what he says, throw me into the sea. I'd rather go die than obey God and go follow him. And so they eventually throw him into the sea, and what does God do? He sends a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Because God is the, the God who chases his rebels, those who are running away from him. If you're his people, he will come and hunt you down to bring you back. God's grace is restoring grace. So where is God's grace then in this scene with Peter? Where, where's God's grace? <clears throat> well, if we think about it, God's grace for Peter is actually allowing Peter to fall. You see, I, I imagine something died this night, or at least took a pretty good hit. And it wasn't Peter's love for Jesus. I think Peter's love for Jesus is on display, actually, at the very end of the passage when he weeps, breaks down, I've just failed the Lord, the one whom I love. I don't think that's what dies. I think part of what dies in Peter is his self-confidence, thinking a little too highly of himself. This is, this is God taking Peter into the fire, allowing him to fail so that he thinks less highly of himself. This is, what, this is what God does in allowing us sometimes to actually be exposed and see our sin and our weakness. We tend to think we're pretty strong. And when that happens, it's God's kindness to chisel some of that off for us. This is why Peter, actually, at the end of his life, in his first uh, letter, 1 Peter, he actually talks about the, the various trials that it's necessary for us to undergo. He says, so that your faith, which is more precious than gold that is, that is uh, put through the fire, that it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, so the reality is, is, is this is God's grace to Peter. Remember when, when uh, Luke, Luke records this, that, that Jesus tells Peter that Satan has demanded to sift Peter like wheat. And I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago. So Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat uh, so that, he, that they may have you. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you turn, strengthen the brothers. In other words, I'm not praying that you don't fall. 
you are going to fall. But I am praying that your faith doesn't ultimately fail. Because God's grace to Peter in this is that letting him fail so that Peter thinks less highly of himself. He's going to be purified through this, like gold going through fire. He's going to come out on the other side restored. Do you know where Peter uh, next comes up in, in the book of Mark? If you move forward to chapter 16 quick, <laughs> right at the end of the book, this is at the empty tomb. The women are there uh, at the empty tomb, and there's an angel there, and the angel tells the women uh, in verse 6, he said to them, uh, don't be alarmed. You, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. You see the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Tell Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. I think that's very intentional. I think most likely, and many people believe that Peter, uh, Mark is writing through Peter. Peter's the one kind of helping Mark understand the whole storyline, the narrative. And uh, I, I would trust if that's the case, Peter intentionally is saying, no, the Lord Jesus through that angel, made sure that when those women came and told us that, that the empty tomb, that I, I was told, Peter, I, I'm the one that denied him. I'm the one that was ashamed of him. And he, he let me know, Peter, I'm going before you. I think that restored Peter like nothing else. Because Peter, I prayed for you that when, when you turn, now you strengthen the brothers. You see, not only is God going to restore Peter, but he's going to transform Peter and actually repurpose his sin, repurpose his failure. Because now Peter can go on for decades and tell people about the grace of God to him. And that though, even though he was ashamed of Jesus, he denied him, look at God's grace to Peter. Even people like Peter who deny the Lord and would rather prefer their safety, even them, they can be restored. And Peter then, his sin was repurposed. This is a reality for us who are in Christ, brothers and sisters. Your sin will be repurposed for the sake of God's glory and for your good. It doesn't mean we just enjoy sin. We still fight against it. But the reality is, is God's way bigger than our failures. And that's great news. Jesus is in the business of restoring sinners and transforming them for his glory. So this will be good, great news for us in the coming weeks. If, if you uh, ever get to those moments where you feel like you just there's a sense in you, did I, did I fail him too much now? Have I crossed the line? Now, normally we don't say something that out loud because we know theologically that's not accurate, but we can feel that. And so we feel very distant from the Lord somehow until we, we get our act right and we fix ourselves. Ah, a passage like this, our, a passage like this speaks against that and says, no, no, no. Dearly beloved, we're washed under the blood of Christ. You cannot out the blood of Christ. You have been washed free forever. Of course you're a sinner, and you're even a worse sinner than you're aware of. And God's grace to you has now awakened you to another layer of it. And that's God's grace to you to free you from that. So now turn to him, repent, and come be restored under his wings. Don't sit off in the corner thinking that you've got to fix yourself one, uh, first before. That's not how it works. But you come and you bring yourself to him. Or maybe you sometimes fear that your sin will now 
prevent God from being able to use you in a certain way because you've, you've failed the Lord. How can he use someone like me? Well, it's a wonderful thing to read through the Faith Hall of Fame, is it not? Uh, the, the people that we read of there, they are, it's chock full of sinners. Right? Peter himself is restored and used mightily by the Lord Jesus for his kingdom. Or take uh, David, great King David, and what did he do? We could talk for a long time of his time of adultery, how he kills Bathsheba's husband, and not only her husband, but other guys in the army with him, sacrifices a load of other men who also have families, just so he can cover up his tracks. Then he sits silent for nearly nine months, and he doesn't come clean. He's confronted finally by God himself through a prophet. God restores and transforms and renews and repurposes sin from, the, from sinners. Well, second, uh, so first of all, God frees us from taking ourselves uh, too serious. Second, it gives us hope in God's restoring and transforming grace. Uh, and one more here, uh, I would say that this passage gives us hope and stability because it deepens our confidence in God's faithfulness rather than our own faithfulness. And we've talked about this uh, for the last couple of weeks. This, the, what we see in this portion of Mark is that Jesus is faithful to unfaithful people. And it's a, it's a deep conviction that we want to have deep in our souls that Jesus remains faithful when we are unfaithful. We are unfaithful people. We are unfaithful sheep. But Jesus remains faithful to his people. You see, there's a, there's a deep fear in, in many of us, maybe all of us, I don't know. A deep fear that, that people will get too close. Because there's this fear in us that when people fully know us, when they know those dark spots of us, at some point it's going to be too much. At some point when they see more of me, they will reject me. And in fact, isn't that one of the reasons why social media can be appealing? Because in social media, we can paint a narrative and control it. And people can like this version of us, but that's all they know. So they can applaud that, they can appreciate that, but they don't know the real us. Because we don't want people to come close. Because when people come close, they're going to see more. And so we become very good at, at locking things in closing doors inside and putting a lock on it and not allowing anybody too close. That's why sometimes people will even sabotage relationships when it just gets a little too intimate. Because we have this deep fear. We're afraid. We want to be known. We want to be loved. But we're afraid once you truly know me, you can't love me because I'm too dark inside. The, the, the hard part is that sometimes we then turn that towards the Lord. And the, the good news is that the Lord Jesus knew Peter way more than Peter knew himself. That's why Jesus is telling him all along, Peter, you are going to deny me. Yet that's not going to stop me from going to the cross for you. I'm here for sinners like you, for broken people like you. This is great news for us. Because believer, God knows more about you than you know about yourself. And God knows more about you than the, 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 you know, the, all those things that, that, maybe, that maybe one person on earth knows, maybe two people on earth knows, or maybe you have parts of you that nobody knows. Situations in life that you, you're too afraid 
to talk to people about because they're too dark. And maybe, the, maybe people close to you will then reject you. But those who are beloved of God, who have been rescued by the blood of Christ, there is nothing too dark. Because the Lord already knows all of it. And he went to Calvary for you. Gave his life to bring you back to himself. And the Lord's love is deeper than you could ever possibly imagine. The reality is, is, is we are way worse sinners than we know. And God's love is deeper still. And that sets us free. And it gives us confidence deep in our soul to say, Christ loves me so deeply. And he's so committed to us that I don't no longer look at my faithfulness to him because I'm going to stumble along the way. But I look to his faithfulness to us, his faithfulness to his people, and that gives us stability. Well, as we take that and move to the Lord's table then together, we are reminded that, brothers and sisters, we, are, we sin against the Lord and we are way worse than we are aware of. But God's grace is deeper still. We are like Peter and then some. And yet, even that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly.